Hello, and welcome to the Jacobite Podcast, Episode 6, The Highland War. We left last time after the Battle of Killicranky and the death of the commander of the Jacobite forces, Viscount Dundee. But before we go on today, I have a couple of matters of housekeeping and clarification from last time, following a Twitter conversation with respected gentlemen and scholars, Professor Steve Murdoch and Graham Millen. Firstly, concerning my use of the term Jacobite Rising to describe the events of 1689, there was some debate and consternation from people at the use of Rising or Rebellion to describe the Jacobite campaigns, as that implies somehow that William and Mary were the legitimate rulers of the British Isles, with the Jacobites contriving to seize power. Whilst it can be certainly arguable that many of the elites within the country had already transferred their support and legitimacy on the whole to the new regime, there were many Scots clans that in fact stayed neutral, and an argument can be made with war in the Highlands and the wars in Ireland, which we will cover later. Nothing was certain in terms of who was to get the throne. There's also a tendency to focus solely on Killicranky as a one-done, rather than looking into long, protracted years of campaigning that actually took place in Scotland. Terminology-wise, I had used the general term, within common usage to describe the events of 1689 and beyond. But I take on board the feedback, as a matter of course, and in a bid to maintain balance and impartiality, have named the rest of the campaign the Highland War, which is a more neutral term. This is the first and only time you will hear me say this, but I'm not a professional uh, historian. I come from a law background, and I'm an Englishman who has an amateur interest in this point in history, and Scottish history in general. That's not going to be used as an excuse to dodge points of contention or inaccuracy on this podcast, because I would like it to be a general history of the Jacobites and accurate and accessible to all. If there is something in the podcast you feel is wrong, especially in terms of pronunciation, please let me know, because Scots, Gaelic and Irish are not languages I'm proficient in, but I dabble with occasionally. Secondly, as a tip of the hat and a nod to my fellow academic, Mr. Millen, I would like to raise the fascinating story of the Scots-Dutch Brigade. The Scots-Dutch Brigade was formed uh, in the United Provinces of the Netherlands and comprised of mostly Scotch but some English volunteers who fought as Protestants to take the land back from encroachment by Catholic Spain. The Scots-Dutch Brigade we're talking about today was actually founded by Major General Hugh Mackay, who you may remember was the commander of government forces at Killicranky. Many of the Dutch regiment were sent to Scotland, but not all of them went to Killicranky. There were only three uh, parts of the regiment in Killicranky. The rest had either been sent to other postings in Scotland or were recruiting for the forces on the continent. There were many famous Scots who served within the Scots-Dutch regiment, uh, as mentioned, Mackay, but also Ramsay, Buchan, Cannon, and even Viscount Dundee, who had served under Mackay. The brigade itself suffered heavy losses at Killicranky to the point that several uh, Dutch widows petitioned the crown for a small stipend to be able to bring their loved ones home to bury them in their home soil. The Scots-Dutch later regrouped with other soldiers and began a government counter-attack. For more information on this regiment, Graham Millen has a lot more information on his thread on Twitter, which I retweeted, but he is available at Ouija Graham. And I must say, I look forward to reading the book he will no doubt author on this subject. So, to the continuing story of our campaign. The government has suffered a severe defeat at Killicranky. 
the shockwaves of this defeat have flowed all the way to Edinburgh, where there was initially talk of fleeing to England as a government in exile, in fear of the inevitable Jacobite sweep across the Firth of Forth from the Highlands, with Dundee bringing Jacobite vengeance to bear on the Williamite usurpers of King James's throne. This was the initial phases when information was sketchy in the aftermath. For example, Luden, the officer who had headed the government advance party at Killicranky, had fled to Fort William so quickly that he honestly believed he was the only surviving officer and had informed the garrison there that many of the others had died. Fortunately for the British Army, Major General Mackay arrived to prove that the reports of his death were in fact greatly exaggerated. Then, more relief for the Williamite government came when news began to filter through that Dundee himself had been killed in the fighting. This was truly a relief for the government forces, as there was consensus which was echoed by Jacobites like Lochiel and Balcaris that with the loss of Dundee, the Jacobites had lost a major rallying point and a charismatic leader. It was felt the Jacobite forces' advance at this point had temporarily stalled while they appointed a new leader. It was into this role stepped Alexander Cannon. Cannon himself was a Scotsman and an accomplished soldier who, like many of the rest of the major players in command of this war, had cut his teeth in the Scots Brigade under the service of the Dutch Republic, rising to colonel in a regiment of Englishmen, and was deployed back to England in 1685 to assist King James in putting down the Monmouth Rebellion. Shortly after this, he became colonel of a regiment of dragoons in 1687. He then followed King James into exile and landed with him in Ireland when he started the war against William there for each of the three crowns. When Dundee asked for extra troops and supplies, it was Cannon who was sent with a few hundred men. This might not seem like much, but it was actually the better option for the Scottish at the time, given that one argument was to take Buchan over and replace Dundee. Buchan was a commander who was encouraged to use the supplies that the Jacobites had, rather than asking for more to take away from the Irish contingent. Cannon arrived just in time for the Battle of Killicranky, and on the death of Dundee, was there to assume command. A move that wasn't entirely without detractors. Ewan Cameron of Lochiel, for example, privately bemoaned the fact that this new commander had no knowledge of Scots Gaelic and no knowledge of the Highland ways. Now, we could probably take that with a pinch of salt, because Cameron believed that he himself should have been in command of the Jacobite army, given that he was the senior clan chief present, whereas they followed a military line and appointed Cannon, who had the virtue of being the highest-ranked officer within the forces. With a system built on honour and prestige, and what could obviously be interpreted as a snub to Cameron, he decided to take his troops home, and he left some for Cannon, but not as many as had been under the command of his son. This exposed the biggest weakness of the Jacobites and Dundee's biggest strength. Dundee had been able to rally all of the clans under a united banner, no matter their own internecine struggles. He managed to turn the clans into a cohesive fighting unit at Killicranky, and it was now beginning to unravel. The government forces were beginning to mass in Stirling and looking to counter-attack. Cannon was desperate to maintain momentum and pressure on the government forces, but Cannon was not about to attack Stirling, where thousands of government troops and a fortress like Castle awaited him. Instead, his plan was to move north, further into the Highland Shelter, towards Aberdeen. However, the government managed to intercept this scheme and send 2,000 men on a feint towards Forfa, eventually reaching Aberdeen before the Jacobites. 
Cannon was somewhat dejected by this, but was cheered slightly when he found out that the Earl of Argyle's regiment, known colloquially as the Cameronians, were in fact garrisoning themselves in the small highland town of Dunkeld. This was perfect for Cannon. There were only 1,200 of them, having just made their way from Dune and Dunblane, and they stationed themselves within Dunkeld on August the 18th. If you were to go to Dunkeld today, you will see a small, picturesque town with a Mercat cross up the road from the bridge of the gorgeously tree-filled banks of the River Tay, whitewashed stone buildings, and Dunkeld Cathedral. The whitewashed buildings are more recent creations in the 1680s. The properties of the late 17th century were all destroyed in the battle that was to take place here. The Cameronian regiment that had based itself in Dunkeld had been raised by the Earl of Argyll and had named itself after Richard Cameron, a militant covenanter whom its men all respected and followed his principles. They had Cameronian chaplains and every regiment was headed by an elder of the faith. Being anti-Catholic and anti-Episcopal at this point, the men decided to defend the new Kirk and King William by extension. News reached the Jacobites that a lone regiment numbering about 1,200 was stationing itself in Dunkeld and Cannon felt this would be the best opportunity to keep momentum going after the victory at Killicranky and keep the morale of his men up. On August 18th, the Jacobites were sighted in small groups moving into position round the hills as Cameronians began to put in place defences, plugging gaps in small walls and entrenching themselves. Later, a Jacobite messenger was sent under a flag of truce to offer parley to the government command in the town, with a letter stating that whether the men came in peace or war, if they destroyed any property, their regiment would be eliminated. The Cameronian commander sent a response to these threats and boasts, stating if any of his men were attacked, as loyal subjects of King William and Queen Mary, they would do their duty and burn all the homes and property to pieces. Writing to Ramsay and Lanier for extra men and cavalry, it was clear that William Cleland, commander of the Cameronians, felt an assault was imminent. Ramsay sent men and received another dispatch warning of an imminent attack. Lanier had received word, but was unsure of himself and the terrain, or perhaps, as has been suggested, did not wish to engage, for he did not act until he arrived in Perth. On Sunday, August 21st, 1689, the Jacobites massed in preparation for their attack. Other forces had answered the fiery cross summons of the Highlanders and swelled the Jacobite numbers Cannon had at his command to anywhere between three to 5,000 men, outnumbering the government troops roughly four to one. The Jacobites also had some field guns seized from Killicranky, but it's unknown how much shot they had, let alone if they had any trained artillerymen who knew how to use them. Had this been a repeat of Killicranky, this would have undoubtedly been a slaughter, which would have carried the Jacobites closer to threatening the government. But luckily for Cleland and the Cameronians, they had a secret weapon, and its name was Dunkeld. The Jacobites were on the high ground once again, but this time were going to be fighting in a built-up urban area. Many battles have shown that numerical advantages can be completely wiped out by funneling men into built-up areas, as it can allow defenders to create choke points, where large numbers of men can funnel through, creating kill zones and getting bogged down. When the Jacobite charge came, it was brutal and fast, but familiar. Cannon obviously felt the Highland charge had worked so well at Killicranky, the men repeated it again, steaming down the hillsides, firing one shot from their guns, charging in with swords, dirks and targes. But the Jacobites had successes against an enemy in open field. The charge now hit a wall, literally in some cases, against the Cameronian trench. 
The Jacobites managed to push the defending forces back, but it was less to do with tactics and more to do with the sheer number of humans coming in a wave at the defensive lines. The Cameronians were slowly falling back, taking casualties, but inflicting several on the Jacobites themselves, before deciding they too would burn houses to prevent the Jacobites from being able to have any cover or firing positions. On the western end of town, the Jacobites had taken up position within a house and were trading shots with defenders, whilst at the Marquess of Atoll's house, named Dunkeld House, Captain Blackadder on the government side had reported the Jacobites were firing constantly, but the Cameronians were holding their positions. Slowly but surely, there was a gradual pullback of the Cameronians towards the cathedral that dominated the town's skyline, sitting on the banks of the River Tay. It was mostly a series of walls and a small parish church, but it contained windows that provided excellent cover, an open land around which attackers had no cover, and an excellent line of sight for the defender. It was here muskets were not only being fired at point-blank range, but men were fighting with sword, targe, and pike and halberd. It was during this fighting that Cleland, the commander of the Cameronians, was felled by musket shots to the head and the liver. He attempted to get out of the street to avoid lowering the men's morale, and died. Despite being action-packed and full of fighting, everything I have just described took place within one hour of the commencement of hostilities. Outside the cathedral, the Cameronians took pikes with burning wood at the ends to fire houses within which the Jacobites had taken up positions to open fire on government pikemen. It was said by the defenders the screams from the houses burning were hideous and their adversaries died in the flames like poor wretches. Elsewhere, Jacobites flamed properties in the towns also. Ammunition started to run low on all sides, but the defenders began to cut lead flashing from the roofs to melt and use a shot, according to several soldiers. All the houses except Atoll's house and two others near the cathedral survived the house fires that took hold. They can still be seen today with plaques indicating this status. At this point, the Jacobites began to pull back from the assault and withdraw. There have been various reasons given for this. One argument put forward was that the Jacobites had run out of ammunition. Another theory is that the Jacobite foot soldiers, having seen the spirited defence put up by the Cameronians when outnumbered four to one, refused to stand and fight any longer and retired. It has been said that Jacobite officers tried to rally their troops to another assault, but the spirits had wavered to the point that they no longer felt able to fight, according to the accounts of prisoners taken later. The defenders took no chances, however, bringing out church pews and cutting down trees to plug holes in the defences. Only once they'd repaired those defences to a satisfactory degree and dispatched news to Perth, the Cameronians allowed themselves any modicum of respite or celebration. In a spot of complete destruction and with streets strewn with Jacobite dead, the Cameronians banged drums, shouted cries of joy and taunted the enemy, praising God for deliverance from the Jacobite threat. The exact numbers of casualties are not clear. Government forces are estimated between 20 people from the government perspective and up to 200 claimed by the Jacobites. It's probably not 200, but a relatively low number, amazing given the ferocity of the fighting. George Munro had taken control of the regiment following the death of Cleland and stated on the Jacobite side that there was anywhere between 150 to 300 deaths. The Jacobites, of course, refuting this, saying that they believed there were only around 20 dead owing to the poor marksmanship of government forces. Again, we may never know the exact numbers. What is clear, however, is the Jacobite offensive had now stopped dead in its tracks. The government in Edinburgh was anxiously awaiting further developments as the last ditch dispatch they had received stated the Cameronians were encircled and Cleland was dead. One can imagine the relief the government felt upon discovery the regiment had held the town in spite of the damage sustained. 
Once the victory was had, there was some recriminations in the government camp. Mackay felt that Lanier and Ramsey could have got more involved in the assault as both were well aware of what was happening and had chose to engage elsewhere or stay in their garrisons. Mackay was particularly angry, stating the delays and dithering had prevented turning the Jacobite withdrawal into a rout. Despite this, the government had blunted the Jacobite assault, bloodied their noses and bar a skirmish or two put a complete end to the Jacobite campaign of 1689. This of course being in the days where inclement weather often forced entire armies to halt action for the winter until the spring of the following year. The effect on the Jacobites of this was more marked. Alexander Cannon had taken a gamble on attempting to neutralise government defences and lost. His army began to lose confidence in him and at the end of the fighting season he disbanded the men to return to their clans in Lochaba under the same recall conditions of Dundee. Cannon took a retinue of soldiers to the Isle of Mull in September 1689 where he stayed with very little shot and even fewer friends. Eventually he despaired of Scotland and was allowed to return to the war in Ireland in November. So whilst he's not left the field of play yet, here ends the necessary but ultimately ineffectual leadership of Alexander Cannon. He thought he could smash the spirits of the government, but in many ways gave the biggest show of defiance and propaganda peace of the ages. Outnumbering the enemy four to one and losing is not a good look. King James took time between the seasons towards the end of 1689 to reassure his supporters, writing to Glengarry that he still believed that God looked kindly on their venture, mourning the loss of Dundee, and promising the minute the weather improved, he would send his illegitimate son, the Duke of Berwick, with cavalry to assist the cause in Scotland. Glengarry raised some troops, but nothing major was done. James sent Alexander Strachan to communicate his best wishes to the troops, and that the true king would return to Scotland with the Duke of Berwick, Mackenzie, the Earl of Seaforth, at the head of 8,000 men and cavalry to help his loyal Highlanders that they should keep the faith until this new season. In what turned out to be even more of a calamity for the Jacobites, Strachan was arrested the minute he arrived in Glasgow, taken to Edinburgh, and he then sang like a canary, implicating many Jacobites and their sympathisers who were subsequently arrested. Not an amazing end for a campaign that was starting to go sour for the Jacobite cause. For the government, meanwhile, the time came for their forces to consolidate their control in the areas they patrolled, as well as attempt to contain any Jacobite threats still posed. The first major point of control was that Mackay and his forces had seized Blair Castle on August 30th, 1689. It was unharmed and abandoned. Mackay had felt this might have been to do with his threat to burn every piece of land and housing from here to Dunkeld if the Jacobites damaged the castle. Mackay then garrisoned five to six hundred troops in the Atoll estate, occasionally receiving citizens and others who wished to take advantage of the Indemnity Act, where Ken William had promised that those who disarmed and surrendered the government forces would come to no harm. The same could not be said of property here, and in the surrounding areas, as cattle, sheep and crops were seized, it was regardless of whether people were affiliated to the Jacobites or not. There were also some reports of soldiers ransacking homes, billeting in private houses expensed to the owners, and causing a nuisance and rising resentment in the towns. Mackay spent this time trying to exchange prisoners, secure government positions, and lobbying the government to secure pay for increasingly rowdy troops, going so far at one point as to travel to London personally to speak to William and Mary on matters in their northernmost and contested kingdom. The Scottish government also took the lull in proceedings to look at reducing forces and thereby reducing expenditure, as wars are a constant drain on finances, and Mackay was asked his advice. He argued against disbanding too many regiments, as he felt that this would jeopardise the security of the Highlands, given that there was still a military campaign raging in Ireland. But Mackay was a realist, 
and he knew that cuts would have to be made in order to keep going during the winter when the campaign was closed. The campaign season started again in earnest in 1690. After attacks on Aberdeen and Inverness in January were repulsed by government forces, the Jacobites were at a low ebb. Having written to James in Ireland for supplies and received nothing but Colonel Buchan and some officers and the Earl of Seaforth with commission letters, tempers were frayed. There were many divisions within the nobility supporting the Jacobite cause, a common theme which would often hamper operations within the Jacobite military and political spheres. Many chiefs were furious with constant letters of platitude arriving from James with no resources to back them up. Others went further, not only blaming the royal ministers of court in exile, but blaming James himself for the problems facing the army in Scotland, believing that there would be little problem sending troops from Ireland and the fact that James was not doing so showed he would be willing to sacrifice the Scots in order to prevail elsewhere. This belief led some, such as the Laird of Glenmoriston, to advocate for a policy of Scottish preservation rather than follow James into the abyss, in which the Jacobites should instead seek terms of peace with William. Others, such as Clan Ranald and Maclean, publicly declared their support for James and the cause. Cameron of Lochiel went further, accusing what I will term the Peace Party of open treachery, betraying their God-given monarch and legitimate sovereign at this, his time of need. Cameron showed the letters from James pledging supplies, urging Jacobite lords to keep the faith. After a lengthy condemnation and indictment of their honour as fighting gentlemen, nobody talked any more of peace, and backed continuation of the armed campaign, appointing Thomas Buchan commander of the Jacobite forces in Scotland, the third man to do so within a year. Thomas Buchan was a Scotsman born in Aberdeenshire, who, like Dundee, had served under Hugh Mackay in the Scots-Dutch Brigade overseas, returning to the British Isles and helping subdue Argyll's Rising in 1685. Whilst Thomas's brother John supported the new regime and fought for William's government at Killiecrankie, Thomas went into exile with James to France, before returning with his king to Ireland and eventually being sent to Scotland in February 1690 by James to take command of the forces following Cannon's defeat at Dunkeld the previous season. Encouraging the Highlanders with promise of imminent French assistance and support, the Jacobites had aimed to resume the fighting and mustered the clans after the spring work on the clan farmlands had completed. Buchan's plan was to march through the Speyside region and Jacobite-sympathising Duke of Gordon's territory, muster the clansmen generally, and attack government positions on the Highland-Lowland border. He set off through the Badenoch region. In preparation to resume his campaign, eventually he reached Glenlochie, and ignoring the advice of his officers, stationed his men around the town of Cromdale. On the government side, despite dealing with troop reductions and supply issues, Mackay had managed to get the beginnings of his long-desired fort in the Highlands. He had to practically beg, steal or borrow the money to get it done, and it was only a palisade with a thousand men in the garrison, but it would, Mackay hoped, be enough to deter Jacobite raiders. Mackay had been desperate himself to get back to Holland, where his family lived, but King William had urged him to stay on until the Scottish Jacobite threat was neutralised, and Mackay had followed the words of his commander and decided to stay. His next move was to empower Major Jacob Ferguson and 600 troops to link up with Captain Edward Pottinger on the HMS Dartmouth and its fleet to deny the Jacobites staging posts on the Western Isles. Mackay ordered the men, alarm the rebel coast, cut their communications and burn their boats, but added women and children were not to be touched or wronged in their persons. Ferguson and his men attacked various villages and fortifications on the Isles of Mull and Kintyre. Provision ships were also attacked and they removed the weapons from all fighting men who surrendered and pledged loyalty to William on the Isles. Then they moved on to Isla, continuing their campaign and burning and violence. Donald MacDonald, a fiercely loyal Jacobite Lord of the Isles, had objected to surrender, even when his son was the one who proposed it. 
The Dartmouth launched a continual barrage of his manor home until troops landed to open fire on men, leaving nothing but a pile of flames and embers. These harrying missions by the naval army forces prevented the island sending troops to aid Buchan and could well have helped prevent Jacobites from securing supply routes into Scotland from Ireland. It came, however, at the cost of Captain Pottinger and the Dartmouth, as they were lost at sea with six survivors. Colonel John Hill, Mackay's adjutant, said his loss was a very great one. Whilst this second phase of seaborne assaults was progressing, Mackay ordered Colonel Thomas Livingston, who was based around Aberdeen and Inverness, to patrol the northern sectors, but changed those orders once he had discovered Buchan's men had taken to the field. Livingston was ordered to march to the location of the Jacobites and catch or limit their numbers. Livingston found the army, mainly by interrogating and threatening to torture a Jacobite captive spy, but he had few supplies for his cavalry and dragoons to capitalise on that information. While supplies were a problem, all on the government side were aware that time was of the essence, and in order to try and prevent the wavering clans from joining the Jacobites, Livingston marched towards the encampment on April 30th, 1690, under cover of darkness, in an area known as the House of Cromdale. Captain Ludovic Grant, laird of Clan Grant and owner of the land on which the Jacobites were camped, was all too eager to help the government remove the rebels, and offered to guide Livingston to their camp by night, first locking his castle gates to prevent anyone leaving to pre-warn the Jacobites, who were currently camped on the plains, with no real cover in sight, in which Mackay later said was a situation akin to an ox to the slaughter. The government forces marched until 3am downstream, when they found a ford across the River Spey with a church, guarded by Jacobite captains Grant and Brodie and around 200 troops. A distractionary skirmish was started, but no alarm went to the main camp. This meant the remaining thousand troops of Livingston fell upon the Jacobites in their beds and tents. In the utter pandemonium that followed, the government claimed a hundred Jacobite deaths and many others being cut down by the cavalry as they fled in panic. Some fled to Lethendine Castle, barricading the entrance and attempting to make a last stand with 50 men, killing the two grenadiers who approached with an offer of surrender. A young lieutenant, George Carlton, crept up with four grenades and caused panic and confusion, as well as some casualties within the castle from shrapnel damage. Despite killing the Grandiers and Livingston wanting to give them no quarter, the Jacobite garrison surrendered after quarter was assured, given that many of the Jacobite men had in fact served in the Scots-Dutch Brigade, and with that, the last stand of what became known as the Battle of Cromdale was over. Estimates put the government losses at between 100 men to just the two Grenadiers, and the Jacobites lost anywhere to 400. Cromdale marks the last formal engagement between government forces and Jacobite forces, but neither side had scored a decisive, crushing victory. There were additional skirmishes, but eventually both forces came to the negotiating table, for different reasons. The Jacobites chose negotiation because even though they had not been categorically defeated, their forces were never going to be large enough to secure a major victory, and they failed to capitalise on any they did get, instead conducting low-level guerrilla skirmishes post-Cromdale. The government, on the other hand, was keen to wrap things up in Scotland and focus on both the larger war in Ireland, where the Jacobites under James were holding on despite the progress of the war there, which we will cover in the next episodes. William also wanted to divert forces to the campaign against France, given that the French navy had defeated an Anglo-Dutch fleet at Beachy Head in July 1690. Whilst Fort William had slowly been constructed that same month, Mackay was now needed elsewhere and was redeployed in November to Ireland, leaving Livingston in overall command of Scotland. Further troop disbandment in Scotland spurred the process forward, as did the real situation on the ground in Scotland for the government, with dwindling supplies, low pay and even worse morale. One such pay dispute had led to a mutiny, with one troop death and increased strife. 
There were some Jacobite actions, such as the seizure of Bass Rock off the coast of Tantalm Castle by Jacobite prisoners, as well as talk of Jacobite recruiting, but this was not strictly accurate. There was not enough of a Jacobite military to mount a credible threat, and many of the clans were beginning to seek their own terms with William in the business of self-preservation. So it was of little surprise on June 20th, 1690, that Major General Buchan sent a proclamation that they did not desire to shed further Christian blood, and agreed to talks as good Scotsmen, offering a goodwill cessation of hostilities to begin on June 30th, 1690. Lord Bredalban was chosen as William's representative to meet at Achalada. The clan chiefs and Bredalban listed five demands from these talks. One, that the clans would be allowed to seek James's blessing to peace, following a mission to turn to him and explain the situation. 2. A restitution of £12,000 to be granted to the Highlanders to compensate their losses. 3. William had to free them of any servitude or dependence on anything other than the Crown. 4. James's officers could stay without molestation or leave with safe passage to France, paid for by the government. And that lastly, 5. Arms could be kept a full indemnity for all crimes and no oath save an oath of loyalty to William or Mary. If this were met, the war would be over. Unbeknownst to William at this point, Lord Bradalban had also added in a clause that the oaths could potentially be negated should James come back as a further incitement to the Jacobites to sign up. Now, this was not something that was official, but the clans felt it was better to sign now and preserve themselves and possibly switch sides back to King James should he come back. But had William known about it, I'm sure he would not have been happy. In the circumstances with the terms he knew of, William agreed but threatened that those who continue to be incorrigible after this gracious offer of mercy shall be punished as traitors and rebels and other ways to the outmost severity of the law. A stipulation was made that the clans had to swear oath of allegiance to the joint monarchs, to designated officers of the crown, the local sheriffs, or the Privy Council in Edinburgh by January 1st, 1692. By this time, it had become obvious to all in Jacobite circles that the campaign was a bust. Following William's victories at the Boyne and Ottrim in Ireland, it was clear Scotland was on its own. Those reinforcements were never coming. Therefore, the Scottish nobles agreed to the Declaration of Akalada in June 1691. Sir George Barclay was chosen for the unenviable task of going to James to ask the men to be released from their oaths of allegiance. James prevaricated and eventually dithered until December 12, 1691, when he told the chiefs they could swear to William and Mary for their own safety. For interest's sake, that now leaves 19 days for Barclay to return from Saint-Germain to Calais, or any other French port, arrive in England, head to Scotland, find Buchan, and then distribute this information amongst the clans to their chiefs for surrender. Amazingly, the letter made the trip from Paris to Dunkeld in 11 days, the courier, a Major Mingus, being so exhausted it was forwarded to Glengarry, where Buchan was at the time. Owing to disputes and clan politics, many only had a matter of days to swear allegiance before the deadline, and some swore later than that. One person who was keen to make an example of treaty violators was John Dalrymple, Lord Stair and Secretary of State for Scotland. He had privately written to Thomas Livingston, stating that Lochaba, Lochiel, Glencoe, Glengarry and Keppoch, all being Catholic, should be destroyed. On January the 11th, he rejoiced at the fact Alistair MacDonald of Glencoe, known more colloquially as the McKeon in records, had not taken the oath. This was in fact technically true, but MacDonald had in fact attended Fort William on December 31st, 1691, 
and there was no sheriff there, forcing him to travel to Inverary, the seat of Clan Campbell, and carrying a letter from Lieutenant Colonel John Hill, confirming that Glencoe had arrived at Fort William before the deadline. Glencoe swore the oath witnessed by Magistrate Sir Colin Campbell on January 6th, 1692. Now, some have said this was a Catholic-Protestant-targeted attack, but Glengarry, who was also Catholic, had signed even later in February, and he was included in this indemnity, whilst Glencoe was not. Some have argued that the Campbell clan, long-standing rivals of the Macdonalds, offered up their rivals as a sacrifice, bolstered by their being delayed for days before being able to swear. Personally speaking, I don't agree. The Macdonalds of Glencoe were well-known cattle reavers in the area, and they had numerous warrants for arrest and execution on them, the frankly awesomely named Letters of Fire and Sword, many of which had been signed by the Stuart kings they swore to defend. They were a small clan, lawless, and former Jacobite Highlanders. For Stair, a lowland Scot who held no love of the Highlands, they presented a perfect easy target. In late January 1692, 120 men of the Earl of Argyll's regiment, headed by Colonel Robert Campbell of Glenlyon, marched into town with orders requesting free quarter. This was a practice often accepted to billet troops without question when asked in exchange for not being regularly taxed. As Argyll's regiment enjoyed the hospitality of the Macdonalds, 800 other soldiers were split into two equal companies under Hamilton and Robert Duncanson, blocking off the north and south ends of the Glen respectively. On the evening of February the 12th, 1692, Major Duncanson delivered the following order, signed by the King, which stated the following, which I will quote in full. You are hereby ordered to fall upon the rebels, the Macdonalds of Glencoe, and put all to the sword under seventy. You are to have special care the old fox and his sons do upon no account escape your hands. You are to secure all avenues that no man escape. This you are to put in execution at five of the clock precisely, and by that time, or shortly after it, I'll, in this case Major Duncanson, strive to be with you with a stronger party. If I do not come to you at five, you are not to tarry for me, but to fall on. This is by the King's special command, for the good and safety of the country, that these miscreants be cut off root and branch. See that this be put in execution without feud or favour, else you may expect to be dealt with as one not true to King or government, nor a man fit to carry commission in the King's service. Expecting you will not fail in the fulfilling thereof, as you love yourself, I subscribe these with my hand at Balachulish, February 12th, 1692, signed R. Duncanson, countersigned King William. The men of Argyll's regiment were there to slaughter the Macdonalds of Glencoe, and that morning shot Alistair McKeon as he rose from his bed to greet the soldiers. The government troops then set about methodically killing 38 people of the village as they fled or before they knew what was even happening. There were some in the regiment who, upon hearing the order, had tried to forewarn their hosts, but many were then forced to flee into the cold, snowy dawn as their houses burnt. It is said many more died of exposure in the cold. Had the troops reached the north and south of the Glen in time, it would have been even worse as the two blocking companies were ordered to murder all who tried to escape, although some historians have argued that both of these commanders knew what they were doing was an atrocity, and so had done their best to avoid all involvement. Now, by contemporary standards, the massacre at Glencoe was not unusual, even perhaps restrained in comparison to other actions, but in the eyes of many in this country, 
seeing their new king and his parliament for liberty take such brutal action against unarmed people was shocking nonetheless. Despite carrying out the intended effect, forcing the clan chiefs into surrender and complicity, people were shocked that the supposedly moral, upright governments could carry out wholesale slaughter of civilians. Another aggravating factor to this was the Scots law of murder under trust, a term to describe this sort of crime, as the Argyll Regiment had been fed and sheltered by the Macdonalds for two weeks before the slaughter. Given that the Macdonalds had surrendered, albeit hampered by various clan politics and bureaucracy, there was certainly a case to be made here for murder under trust. A commission was later set up to investigate, but given that the King had given the order, and the ruling classes of London and Edinburgh knew what the mission had been set up to do, the complete legality of the actions was ignored, and instead a question of exceeding authorities by the people on the ground was raised. Stair ended up being dismissed as Secretary of State, but nobody was ever charged as a crime with any part of the Glencoe Massacre. Now, I've covered this in the briefest detail because it's an important end to the Jacobite Highland War, and there are many fascinating books on this subject, and I recommend reading larger on this tragic event. From the point of view of the Jacobites, this was a propaganda coup. Charles Leslie, a Jacobite propagandist, published Gallienus Redivivus, or Murder Without, being a true account of the dewitting of Glencoe. In this pamphlet, Leslie luridly details the murders of children by officers, stokes inter-clan hatred by proclaiming this was an action solely by Campbells, and that the people of the Highlands would cry out for justice to be delivered by the true Stuart King from the usurping regime of William. Glencoe was the shockingly brutal end to the war in the Highlands. The clans were now subdued, but the Jacobites would exploit any opportunity to bring up the massacre to show the true disregard for which the government and the king by extension held the people. And later, when playing on nationalist fears, how little regard the English held for Scotland. The Scotlanders' victim narrative may not be borne out by evidence, as there were Scots commanding on both sides, but it in no way takes away from the bloodshed and sacrifice of the men who died trying to fight for their chosen king be it James or William, nor the destruction of towns and villages and communities in Scotland. Next time, we shall go forward by going back to 1688 and travelling across the sea to Ireland. Here, the predominantly Catholic Parliament in Dublin will declare itself for King James, who sees the Emerald Isle as his best staging post to fight to regain the crown, and it's the place William of Orange and James Stuart will meet on the battlefield for the crowns of the three nations. Thank you all for listening and I hope you will join me then.